Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. If I sound a little bit different, it's because I am in LA where it's about zero dark 30, talking with Josh Crashauer three time zones away. So good morning. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. Good morning, Charlie. Great to be back. So, you know, when you fly, I haven't flown a lot in the last year and a half. I mean, I have flown, but I have been kind of quarantined. So maybe I've led a sheltered life. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting experience getting on the airplane and figuring out that, that before takeoff, you had to, uh, load your credit card into some app because the only way you would be able to buy a, any, you know, alcohol <laughs> or anything, um, was touchless. Have you done this? It's touchless. They won't even touch your credit card anymore. Yeah, I've only flown once since the pandemic, and it was not a pleasant experience. Or not, so I, I, I sympathize with the, the flight attendants and the pilots. Yeah, no, no, no. I, everybody was. The great. trains are packed. People yeah. are, are upset, and everyone, everyone's worried about you know the pandemic. So it's, yeah. So, but I, but I did this, but it was the you know putting in your your mailing address about ten times, and, and, and you don't get internet service. You, I, I tried that, and I I didn't get you know an internet connection. So I I I I, I was frustrated to, to no end when I tried to do it. Well, the other big dilemma, of course, is like what do you do on the on the flight? Uh, everyone experiences this. There are more choices now. Obviously, you know the, the movies and television, and there's always books, and you could listen to a podcast. I didn't have to make any of those choices. I did tweet about this because, as I said, I've, I've led apparently a sheltered life because the couple behind me was arguing so loudly that I had to turn everything off. <laughs> the and I, look, possibly alcohol was involved in this, but uh, so you know, the, the the wife is is really, really, really angry because she really hates her father-in-law. And she's going on about how terrible her father-in-law is, how insulting, you know, he's a know-it-all and he treats her like crap all the time. And they always visit his family and they don't visit her family. And he's trying to, you know, to, it's, it's, he's not so bad. Well, he just, and she's getting, you know, I went to bed really pissed last night, she said, and you didn't even know, mumble, mumble, mumble. It's because you become so desensitized about what a bleep hole your father is. And so, I'm starting to make notes on this because where, where is this actually going to go? And so at one point she says, well, I'm, I'm, I am finished with this. And then of course we, we were landing in Denver and I had to, you know, put my, my seat up in its full up, upright and locked position as well as the tray table, et cetera, you know? Um, but it actually gets better because I get out of the plane and the couple that was sitting across from me, you know, in, in the, you know, um, in the, in, in the jetway are saying, well, at least that was an entertaining flight and it was free. The entertainment was free. And I said, did you hear that too? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We turned off the movie. We were watching a movie <laughs> and we turned it off. And the guy said, yeah, I didn't really know what was happening until she started punching him. Oh goodness. <laughs> I missed the punching because they were directly behind me. So anyway, that that's that's kind of that's kind of my adventure, Josh. Uh, sitting yeah, my, here. my two my two creature comforts on planes noise canceling headphones and high speed internet or fast internet on, on the plane. If we, I get those two things, you can, I'm fine. Be happy. Uh, yeah. And, and an IPA, Just a, that would be the one that would be the, the one thing. Okay. So we have a lot to talk about today uh, in terms of uh, what the former guy is saying. I'm going to, I want to work up to that. It, did, did you hear this? This is a couple days old, but, but I, I still think it's an extraordinary moment. Lindsey Graham speaking to Republicans in South Carolina. I, I know you've probably read about this, but here's Lindsey Graham, who's constantly trying to figure out who he is and who's going to love him. <laughs> and he's speaking to a group of fellow Republicans in South Carolina. 
And, and I want to make this clear up front. He's doing the right thing, but the reaction is really still so revealing and extraordinary. So let's play a little soundbite of Lindsey Graham meeting the folks in South Carolina. If you haven't had the vaccine, you ought to think about getting it because if you're my age... I didn't tell you to get it. You ought to think about it. I'm glad I got it. 92% of the people in the hospitals in South Carolina are unvaccinated. He's like, I'm not telling you to get the vaccine. I'm just telling you to think about it. No. Josh, this is kind of an illustration of the leopards eating people's faces party, isn't it? It's like you. Yeah, you, and it also reminds me of what we heard yesterday at the Facebook uh, congressional hearing, where the types of uh, misinformation, the types of engage, g- engaging posts often <laughs> jibe with what those protesters or what those uh, booing uh, attendees at, at Lindsey Graham's town hall are reading and, and, and sucking up uh, on, a, on a daily basis. You know, we, we've always had fringes in, 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 in American politics, but they've never seemed so loud, so empowered, so emboldened. And, you know, you're right. I mean, Trump has fueled that, especially, you know, among Republicans. Uh, But you can't win. Even Trump not having access to social media uh, since his presidency hasn't changed that fundamental dynamic that uh, people are getting bad information, bad, uh, inaccurate news. uh, It's not news. uh, And and that's getting worse and worse and worse. It's not just the bad information. They have feelings. And they're angry all the time. So Lindsey Graham says, I'm not telling you to get the vaccine. I'm just telling you to think about it. No, we're not going to think. Don't you tell us what to think about. I mean, whoa, it's and these are these are people's grandparents, Josh. I mean, these are what's interesting is that every cultural or every societal issue has become a political football. You have to argue over everything. And I don't know if you caught this, Charlie, but uh, Ron Johnson was was on Fox this week. And I was actually kind of wondering whether whether the pill that may be released uh, that that can cure uh, the the symptoms from the, 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 the COVID if that's going to be the same type of tribal issue or if that's maybe the pill versus the shot maybe be helpful to get people cured and, and treated. Uh, but Ron Johnson was on uh, Fox this week and he's, he said that the Merck, the company that, that, that produced the pill stole the information about the treatment from, from in, in, Invermectin, the other, the other, the other, uh, you know, <sighs> controversial drug that's not particularly effective that um, because that, that's, that's the drug that Republican, very conservative right wing Republicans are, are, are talking about. Right. So I don't think we're over. This is, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Charlie, like everything has become politicized. Everything has become tribal and we can't even have fundamental agreements on common sense. Well, issues like and you know, it's one thing to blame Facebook and I'm, I am willing to pile on Facebook. Don't, don't get me wrong. But when you have United States senators spewing bullshit, th- this is, this is again, um, how bad is the situation? It's bad. It's really bad because even if you try to, you know, you know, tell people reasonable things like Lindsey Graham, you know, he's going to get booed. And then you have Ron Johnson, who's on Fox News, spreading these absolutely baseless conspiracy theories. You know, it, it, it's as if, you know, he was sitting around thinking, I haven't said anything crazy this week. What can I say that's like, you know, completely crazy? And he does. And of course, there's no consequences. I mean, he's not going to not be invited back on Fox News, right? Nobody was yelling at him. Oh, so speaking of 
Okay, so I'm I'm, I'm already just you know kind of. Well, and I, let me just add to that, Charlie. The bidding war gets higher and higher. Yes, right, like, exactly. Right, and, and, and I don't know if you follow Josh Mandel's Twitter yes. feed, the oh, Senate no. candidate in Ohio, but he seems to have to get more and more extreme as the main as sort of the mainstream right moves moves in that direction. It's right, drugs. It's drugs. You need you need to have the the more potent meth on the streets. Yep, I mean that's a great great comparison because it gets more outrageous and more outrageous, and we all get numb to it. Because it's just becoming so commonplace. So, what, what was Josh Mandel's latest tweet? What he's basically now celebrating January sixth, like you know how wonderful it is that children went there, and because this was democracy or something right. like that. A, he, someone took his daughter to, to the the, pro, the rally, and this is the this. The, the paragon of democracy. It's it's the example of democracy in action. Well, I, I want to come back to this, but I, but I'm on this 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 issue of of you know people's feelings getting ramped up because you know I it, it seems like an old and, and tired debate to say we should have more civility in our politics. Well, yes, we should, but uh, as I wrote in my newsletter this morning, civility is having a really really bad week. You know, following senators into in, into the ladies' room, and you have parents who are protesting outside the home, the private residence of a school board member because of a mass policy, you know, you surely you come out, we want to confront you with our demands. It's like everybody is cranked up to, to a level of 10 all the time. And that's what makes this scary. It's not just that it's out there. It's not just that we're divided. It's that the anger and outrage is being stoked. And then it's being rationalized so that, that, that if you really feel intensely about it, you feel that you have permission to engage in any kind of conduct, no matter what. And anybody that says, hey, you know what, I understand you're frustrated, I understand you're irritated, but perhaps you, you know, ought not to engage in performative assholery. No, 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 because my feelings are really, really, really intense. And I'm sorry, it's like, okay, here we go. Um, okay, so speaking of misinformation, um, you, you heard about the former guy uh, who went on the John Solomon podcast. John Solomon was one of these Ukraine gate reporters, right? One of the people who was trying to smear, you know, various people. How do you describe John Solomon? John Solomon used to be a investigative reporter at the Washington Post. It's, it's kind yeah. of bizarre to see how his career has, has ended up. But um, yeah, like he used to be someone who was, you know, on the front page of the paper every morning yeah, in the yeah. Post. And now he's, you know, kind of a crank. Uh, he yeah, goes. he's kind of a crank. Well, but he's a crank with a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the thing. It's like, hey, this podcasting is really cool. Look at all of these cranks, you know. Um, and it, 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 so he gets the former president of the United States to come on his podcast. And we have a new form of retconning, a new revisionist history. You can tell that Donald Trump is, is working on the marketing message for the Great Revenge Tour of 2024, right? He's going to run again. And, you know, obviously he wants to run on the big line. And, he, and he's figuring out ways to recast uh, his attempts to overthrow the election. Because even in the modern Republican Party, even in 2021, there are people who think that a president trying to overthrow a legitimate election is a little bit questionable, right? So he's he still, he recognizes that he has to deal with this. So here's the latest version of this. This is the former president of the United States on this uh, cranky podcast yesterday. The insurrection took place on November 3rd. That was the insurrection when they oh, rigged the election, uh, the big insurrection, the real insurrection, really the crime of the century yeah. that took place on November 3rd, yeah. not, uh, not on January 6th. They're dropping subpoena on all of your former advisors. Do you plan to invoke executive privilege, plan to fight some of these requests? We did nothing wrong. 
they did something wrong. The investigation should be on the election yeah. of November yeah. 3rd, on the right. presidential election of 2020. That's what the committee should be set up for. And they should investigate the election fraud sure. because many states had fraud. Many, no. many states. Many no. people that no. you know got two ballots, three ballots, four ballots. Yes. The most I heard no. was seven. But they got a lot of ballots. The post office, the delivery, sometimes they get delivered, sometimes they don't. It is the greatest I'm telling you, it is the greatest fraud ever committed in this country, probably, but it is the you crime of the century. The crime, the crime of the century, Josh Crashauer. So here's here's the new the new narrative. The real insurrection was the election. It wasn't the attempt to overthrow the election. The election itself was the crime. So the entire democratic process is is illegitimate, and he's going to ride that to the Republican nomination. So I mean, look, that it's overwhelmingly probable that he'll use that in in the, in the campaign. It's an absolute certainty he'll use it to fleece his supporters. I mean, this is the great thing. This is the, the great, the, the big lie has become the great grift, hasn't it? I mean, he will raise hundreds of millions of dollars off that. Well, it's worse than that, Charlie, because it's now the litmus test for Republican candidates in a lot of these primaries for Congress, right? So you're now seeing, you mentioned Josh Mandel in Ohio, who's the at least right now, though, the front runner in that Senate race, a race that leans Republican, um, state that leans Republican, at least. You have, you know, Alabama, Mo Brooks, you've got Georgia and Arizona. These are must win Senate races in purple states where you got Herschel Walker, who endorses a lot of the same stuff. And you got you got a Republican. You can't even the popular governor of, of Arizona, the Republican, Doug Ducey, can't run because he doesn't want to uh, engage in this kind of silliness. Um, it, it, it is. It's to the point where Donald Trump has a rally in Georgia a couple of weeks ago, and he hates Governor Brian Kemp so much that he all but endorsed Stacey Abrams, and Perfect. yet conservative talk show hosts can't say anything, can't, can't, even though they think what he said is crazy and they don't agree with it. They're, they're, they're stunned into silence because Trump has such a hold. On the Republican Party Str electorate, strategic silence. We'll just we'll just we'll just wait for something else to come up. Okay, so deep breath here. I don't want I don't want to, I don't want to obsess over the uh, the, the debt ceiling or others. We've, we've talked about this before. So here here's my question, Josh. Is is with, with all this back and forth going on, you know, high drama in D.C. Is anybody outside of D.C. do do average voters actually care about all of this? I mean, every once in a while, we have to step back and realize that the process is inside baseball. And the only thing that really matters is the result. But process can still do some damage, can't it? So give me some sense. Is, it, is, it, is anybody actually paying attention to this um, or will they just wait until it crashes and go, hey, what 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 just happened to my 401k? Well, I, I bet if you asked most Hill reporters covering the debt ceiling, most of them don't understand all, all the machinations about what, what, what what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, they get the big picture. But this is so, so dense, so esoteric. In fact, the morning combo did a, did a poll and asked about the debt ceiling, and most people didn't didn't really know what was going on. Right, right. So you are right, Charlie, that this is outcome based if 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 there is a default if, if there's a crisis obviously voters are going to be paying attention but uh, no you know i think a lot of this is inside baseball maneuvering i, I, I don't you know moody's a lot of the credit agencies don't see uh, a default because ultimately we've played this game before it's a game of cat and mouse between the parties and ultimately there's going to be uh movement at the very end and i i, I see it very unlikely that there's going to be a crisis and i think voters intuitively ex expect that because of, of past experience yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of this 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 Byzantine, you know, uh, 
you know, back and forth. And then in the end, you know, there's white smoke that comes out of the, uh, out of, out of the Capitol and everything's okay. So I want to talk about Kirsten Cinema because, uh, speaking of people who are inspiring passions, I, I got a direct message. I should never read direct messages, but this one, this one was, 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 was pretty good. Because it was one of the first things I saw when I got here to LA say, um, keep in mind that, that Kirsten Cinema is, is a democratic Senator. She is one of the 50. You don't have a majority without Kirsten Cinema. Uh, she has voted with the Biden administration, what, nearly 90% of the time. Um, obviously, she's playing some games with reconciliation. We can talk about that in a moment. Um, okay, so I got this direct message. Cinema, one of the best politicians, question mark. Are you out of your mind? Why? Because she wants to stop the infrastructure bill. You are still a solid Republican. What a shame. I am unfollowing you. <laughs> and so I don't know, because I had some time. I said, why did I ever say that? And he goes, no, no, no. You liked a tweet that said this. <laughs> what I did was Matt Lewis, who is trolling everybody in the world, did a column yesterday where he said that Kirsten Sinema and Liz Cheney may be the bravest politicians in America. It was a column designed to piss yeah. everybody off, right? So I, I retweeted it saying, you know, Matt is just trolling everybody now, right? So because I retweeted that tweet, the guy says, well, I'm, I am unfollowing you. Which gives you an insight into the passions that Kirsten Cinema can inspire. Okay, let's talk about Kirsten. Well, yeah, well, clearly think about this on, on, as far as just the policy side of, of what Cinema supports. She voted for the one point nine trillion mm -hmm. uh, in, in stimulus, right? She's, and if she had not, it wouldn't have passed. Right. Just remind well, people that's one point nine trillion right there, right? Yeah. She uh, co-wrote or helped help help negotiate. The what one, one a little over one trillion dollars in infrastructure uh, money that that was part of the compromise that Republicans and Democrats struck. So that that's about three trillion, and she does support social spending, just not at the three and a half trillion dollar level. She's more in the one and a half trillion dollars space. So that's another one and a half trillion dollars. She supports four and a half trillion dollars in additional spending. That used to be controversial, even in, 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 in certainly in moderate Democratic circles, not that long ago, and yet. Because she's not willing to spend another three or so trillion dollars, she's a traitor. She is, you know, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the you just see the the videos of people uh, just I've yes. never seen this like just taping her in bathrooms and and following her around planes. It's 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 ridiculous, and she is not a conservative. She, I mean, moderate is a good way of, of putting it these days. But her position ten years ago under President Obama would have put her you know, in the center, center left of, of the Democratic Party back then. The notion that she is somehow a traitor and somehow the worst person in the world shows just how far the Democratic Party has moved to the left, how Bernie Sanders has really kind of won out the debate on policy within the Democratic Party, while folks like Cinema and Manchin and, and other quieter uh, Senate Democrats who don't want to stick their neck out for fear of having the same anger at them as, as Cinema has been facing – they're they're now in the minority. They're now finding themselves uh, overmatched and, and over and outnumbered. Let's talk about Kirsten Cinema because uh, she's getting uh, an interesting treatment. Uh, the New York Times, of course, has this piece of the cocooning of Kirsten Cinema by by Reed Epstein. That I would say and this may be somewhat unfair. Kind of characterizes her as kind of a little bit flaky. That she doesn't talk to people. That she doesn't uh, engage with her constituents. Um, that she's a little bit odd. Um, so you, you, you've, co you've covered that race. I agree with you, by the way, the, the whole notion, she's not a moderate, she's a conservative. It's ridiculous. If you look at her voting, right. But 
what exactly is she? And I guess I'm, 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 I'm sorry to put it this way, but you know, there, there is that, this, this narrative, which I find interesting among in the media and among progressives that she's really, really, really flaky or that she's an evil sellout. So who the hell is she? I would use the word eccentric. Um, okay. I think one of the most interesting, fascinating, compelling things about Senator Cinema is that she's now a centrist, right? But when she started her political career, she was one of the most left-wing activists you could possibly imagine. She she voted for Ralph Nader in 2000. She led some of the most, uh, you know, strange anti-war protests during the Bush years and, and made a lot of intemperate comments uh, that, that actually were used against her in that 2018 campaign to, to the point where I thought she might lose because of, of her past history. Yeah, uh, I remember she, that. She also was a progressive in the state legislature initially. She was one of the most progressive state lawmakers in Arizona. And at some point when she was in the state legislature, she had sort of a, a coming of age moment where she realized she wasn't getting anything done. It wasn't helping her, her political career. And she did a total 180 where she started working more with Republicans to, to pass legislation to get things done in, in what was then a pretty Republican state at the time. Um, now, a lot of Democrats expected her to kind of talk moderate in the campaign, but be a reliable party line vote after being elected. And like you said, Charlie, she has voted ultimately with, with the Biden administration most of the time. But the notion that, you know, Democrats expect her to support, you know, three and a half trillion dollars in government spending at a time of, of inflation, when she represents a state that ha is very affluent, it has a big suburban core where she actually made huge political inroads in her own election. The notion that, like, playing progressive politics in Arizona is a winning strategy is purely delusional. And, and she understands the politics of Arizona. She understands that you need to be moderate to win in a, in a state like that. And she understands that her strategy is a little risky, but I think it's very logical. She's spending political capital on the left three years before her election in order to brand herself as a maverick, brand herself as, a, as someone who's going to stick the middle finger at these left-wingers in, in Congress. And that's going to give her invaluable goodwill when she's up for re-election. And, and frankly, I, don't, I honestly don't think people are going to remember all the details of, 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 of the, you know, especially if, if something passes, ultimately. So, I don't so think how, Democrats how, are going to challenge her. How, how is this, in fact, playing back in, uh, in, in Arizona? I mean, uh, you, you've written about this. There, have there been polls? Um, how is it playing uh, back home? Yeah, I mean, she has lost support with Democrats in Arizona. It depends on what poll you look at, but she she still has about you know fifty plus percent support among Democrats. But most Democrats have 90 percent support within their party mm -hmm. at this moment. She's you know kind of down to down to the fifties, sixties in, in one other poll. She's doing well with independents. She in one poll shows her uh, doing better than Mark Kelly, the, the the junior senator who also won a close race this past who is, year, who is actually up for re-election next year. And she's helping him out. I, I think she's helping him out by distracting <laughs> scrutiny from Senator Kelly and putting it squarely on herself, even though she doesn't have an election until 2024. So she's doing well with independents, not not amazingly well, but she's definitely bought bought some political capital with independent voters. And she's doing remarkably well with Republicans. Uh, she's at, at the very least tamped down the opposition uh, from Republicans. About 40% of Republicans view her favorably. Now, she's not going to be in a campaign that those numbers are not going to last. She's not going to have 40% support from Republicans. But she only needs about 10% support from Republicans. She got 12% 
in, in her 2018 election, which was a very unusually high number in and of itself. So, so, so this is building her yeah. goodwill across the aisle, which I think is going to be long lasting. Okay, you're making an interesting point here. Um, she she is eccentric. She's probably a little bit strange. There's there's no question about it. I mean, I'm I'm you know some of the criticisms have some validity, but what I hear you saying is that if you watched the way she ran and the way she positioned herself when she was campaigning it pretty much tracks with the kind of senator she's being, that, that people shouldn't be surprised that she's kind of centrist, mavericky, unpredictable. She called herself an Arizona independent continuously during that 2018 campaign. And she was running, by the way, against Martha McSally, who at the mm-hmm. time uh, was seen as a very good Republican recruit. Now, she did not run a good campaign, and she had a lot of problems of her own. Uh, but look at Arizona, Charlie. The Republican Party has been taken over by Trumpists. The the party is a mess, the Republican Party in Arizona. And and the craziest brand of Trumpist as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just look at this election audit. I mean, it's crazy, Mm -hmm. right? Cinema sees the opportunity that Republicans are giving Democrats, but they will lose that opportunity if they end up embracing the crazy on their own side. So she's got this wide open middle that she's embracing, and they're embracing her back. And, you know, the results speak for themselves. She won very narrowly in in that 2018 election, which was a really good year, a a wave year for Democrats. There was a gubernatorial nominee who was running alongside of her who actually ran as a progressive, adopted the most progressive immigration positions, took the checked every box for progressives and got some support, got some money. And it wasn't like he was a fringe candidate. It was a serious candidate running as the first Hispanic governor to, to be governor of Arizona. He ran 10, 20 points behind her mm. in a year that was a Democratic wave in Arizona. So that's all you need to know. The, the progressive model has been tried in Arizona three years ago, and it failed spectacularly in the same election year that Kirsten Cinema pulled off the upset victory. Okay, but but back to the the eccentricity. Um, I'm looking at the Reed Epstein piece in uh, in the New York Times where he talks about when he was covering her before her election, and he he had a 38 minute discussion, um, and he says that this this whole event was seemingly conducted purely for the benefit of the Wall Street Journal, where I worked at the time, and CNN. And she took every opportunity at that time to praise President Donald J. Trump and her meetings with him. When she was asked about child care, she said Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump, was working on it. In our subsequent 13-minute interview, Cinema could not name any topics in which she disagreed with Trump. When I asked what her younger self, who worked for Ralph Nader's campaign, would think of her 2018 self, she said he would that she, her younger self, would be proud of the growth. And she wouldn't say whether she had given up on her former more liberal beliefs, but she stressed she had prioritized results over rhetoric. So this is what puzzles people. It's like, okay, where is she? I mean, it's one thing for her, as you've laid out, to say that she's charting kind of a third way, you know, independence. But what was with the Trump flirtation back in 2018? So I think that may be a little overstated. Um, if I remember correctly, she did not openly criticize Trump as much as most Democrats did, but she did. There were areas where she did put out statements breaking with with the Trump White House. Like she was not exactly a Democratic Trump supporter. So I think that that may have been an outlier. The bigger issue to me when I read Reed Epstein's piece in The Times is that she avoided that. That was a rare interview that she gave the national media during that campaign. I was out in Arizona. I spent a week in Arizona during that campaign, during the the, the, dead, the end of the campaign when the things were getting really heated. 
And I had a similar experience as Reed. She, I didn't get any details about her schedule, whether she was holding any events. I also had a similar experience where right on my way out of town, they told me about an event at the last minute, which I ended up going to. It was a veteran. She was talking to a, a lot of moderate minded veterans. Uh, and, and, and she was she worked the room really well. This was not a, a staged event. It was a constituent service type event where she was really working the room. And a lot of these moderate minded McCain Republicans really, you know, really liked her, um, spent spent, uh, you know, a long time talking to her after the event was over. But when I stuck my mic out and asked her, wanted to ask her kind of the same questions Reed was, she literally ran out the door. Her, her, her spokesman kind of body blocked me. And I had to scream some questions as she ran yeah. to her SUV. So, so, so she you, does not talk to the press. Yeah. She does, certainly doesn't talk to the national press. And the difference between her and McCain, she's trying to model herself after John McCain, the maverick of Arizona. But McCain loved the press. He went on every Sunday show. Yeah, he talked to the press all the time. She did not talk to the national That press. was his base, right? The media. So what, what, is, what, what is that about? Why, why does she not want to talk to the press? I mean, my, my view of it at the time was – uh, she did not want to confront these the, the 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 history of her evolution. Like that was my main Too question. Awkward, yeah. How do you become a Ralph Nader supporter who's leading anti-war protests, and then ten years later, fifteen years later, you're now running as this Trump? Um, you know, you know, you're not criticizing Trump, and 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 you're running as a as a centrist in Arizona. Like it's a fascinating dynamic. It's a fascinating story, and and she's quirky. She's got this very interesting personality. She's the the, the first bisexual member of the Senate. There, there's a lot about her that is that screams like writing up a profile that will be very very fascinating and very very readable. But she did not want to engage. She wanted to do everything through her spokespeople. And she was one of the least transparent candidates I ever covered in a big race like that. So how, how do you think this is playing out with her, the, the, uh, the vitriol from, uh, from members of her own party being chased into bathrooms, yelled at on airplanes and, and in airports? Uh, is this the kind of thing that uh, is likely to persuade her? Is she likely to get her back up? What, do you have any sense? I mean, now, nobody really seems to know how, how, she, how she goes about making these decisions. But do, do you think these, these, this tactic and this pressure will be effective? No. I mean, if there's anything we know about her is that she likes to go against the grain, so to speak. Mm, you know, yeah. she went against the Democratic establishment in the beginning of her life. She liked to put, I mean, and she was a lefty and, and a Green Party uh, member or a Green Party supporter. And now she's doing it, doing it the other way. She, she, she starts she likes being finger. a contrarian. This is, this is a woman that, that, that wore a sweater reading Dangerous Creature presiding over the United States Senate. Perhaps not the kind of person who's going to be intimidated by, you know, being videotaped on somebody's smartphone, right? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the coat. What was the coat that Melania Trump yeah. wore? I, I really don't care. care. Yeah. Right. I mean, she could wear that coat. <laughs> that's her, that's her uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. No, I talked to senators, uh, Democratic senators, Republican Susan Collins, some of the more moderate Republican senators who work with her pretty frequently, and they they speak very highly of her behind the scenes. She is is a popular within um, you know with, with a lot of a lot of senators, especially Republicans. A lot of Republicans work well with her, and and she's not you know kind of quiet. She she does uh, play a constructive role, but publicly to the media. She ever since she ran for the Senate, she has been almost all but mum to everyone, maybe with the exception of a, a couple Arizona reporters she occasionally talks to. No, I was I was looking over her voting voting record, and you know this is this is where you kind of you're scratching your heads about the, all of the 
the uh, the I mean, I look, I I understand the irritation and the anger. I mean, look, I I I get it. Except that people need to understand that we're talking about a reconciliation bill because that uh, that budget resolution passed the Senate passed the Senate 50, 51, 50, right? I mean, it yeah. passed. It would not have passed without Kirsten Cinema. We wouldn't even be having this discussion without her. You wouldn't have the bipartisan infrastructure bill without Kirsten Cinema. Um, when it comes to voting rights issues, she is the crucial vote. We hear all of this talk about the need to abolish the filibuster so we can get these important priorities through. None of those important priorities pass without her vote. Not one of them. So, I don't know. So, okay. Let's let's get real about the seriousness of the primary challenge, too, because not only is Arizona a moderate state with a lot of moderate independents and Democrats, it's kind of insane to think that Democrats are going to be facing a pretty evenly divided Senate, no matter what happens in 2022. It's going to be pretty close. And you're, and it's going to be hard for Democrats to hold the Senate majority without winning Senator Sinema seat, right? Yeah, no kidding. The notion that they would get behind a, a primary challenge that could essentially hand the seat over to Republicans just because of spite over something that happened a few years ago, it, it seems delusional, frankly. And there have been only two Democratic senators who have lost primaries in the last 30 or so, since 1992. Joe Lieberman, who ended up winning re-election mm-hmm. as an independent, and Arlen Specter, who you know actually switched parties at the last minute after spending his career as a Republican. So, like historically, and and, and just po- the political reality of a primary challenge makes very little sense. Isn't really plausible, and I think she knows that. She knows that, and she's you know that's why she's deliberately moving to the center and sticking the middle finger at, at the progressives in the state that don't have all that much influence. Well, also as as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, you know what matters are the results. So that uh, two three years down down the road, if in fact this bill passes with her support, nobody's really going to remember that much um, about how how we got there. Okay, so um, I want to talk to you about another race that is like right in front of us right now that is going to be. Um, well, I was going to say overanalyzed, but it obviously is going to be an important indicator of the state of politics right now, which is the governor's race in Virginia. And I want to talk to you about that right after this. If you're a fan of this podcast or any of our other podcasts here at The Bulwark, I really think you're going to enjoy our newest edition. It's called The Focus Group, and it's hosted by our own Sarah Longwell. Maybe you've heard Sarah talk about these focus groups that she conducts, but now she's actually sharing real audio from the participants. It's a great show, and I know you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you consume podcasts. Okay, we're back with uh, Josh Kraschauer from the National Journal. Josh, you have been writing extensively about uh, the the Virginia governor's race. These races, because they're off year, are always kind of seen as harbingers of the national mood. And I think that there had been early on, and the, kind of the assumption that Virginia had turned blue, that uh, there was a Democratic wave there. Uh, Terry McAuliffe is the Democratic candidate. He's being challenged by Glenn Youngkin, who has been trying to, is it fair to say, kind of walk this tightrope of Trumpiness? So I call Glenn Youngkin a, a Mitt Romney in a Donald Trump world. Um, he, he is, he is the, you know, he was the former head of the Carlisle Group, which is 
frankly, about as establishment as it gets in Republican. Yeah, very, very populist. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, he is, he lives in Great Falls, Virginia, which is probably the richest uh, town um, in, in, in the state. Terry McAuliffe lives right next door in McLean. So these are, these are two really rich, really wealthy uh, establishment type candidates. Uh, but, but Youngkin has been trying to balance the need to get the Trump voters in the rural parts of Virginia out to the polls to get them engaged while also winning over the suburban voters that voted for Mitt Romney but have defected in the last two elections to to Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And, and those are, the, it's a really difficult needle to, to thread. But he also has, I mean, I think a lot of people misinterpreted where Virginia is politically. Uh, Virginia has a lot of moderate voters like Arizona. A lot of them left the Republican Party in the last two elections. But these are not progressives. These are not like fire-breathing Left left wingers and Virginia is a fun, functionally a blue leaning but still a, a purple state. And governors' races in Virginia almost always go against the president's party. It's always held the year after the presidential election, and almost to a T in the last like fifty years, the the election goes against the party in charge. So Youngkin not only has the political wind at his back fundamentally, but he's also facing uh, the Democrats and facing McAuliffe at a time when the Democratic Party is really, uh, should I say, in disarray, is really struggling um, to, to come up with a message to get things done in Washington. And uh, this is almost a perfect storm for Republicans, where they have a candidate that's not a, a Trumpist, even though he's pandered to that wing of the party. And he also has a lot of issues that, that are playing in his direction. So this is going to be, I, I've talked to both campaigns uh, in the last couple of days, this is a tied race. This this race is is yeah. in the internal data from from the campaigns, pretty much neck and neck, and it's going to come down to. I mean, it's going to come down. We'll, we'll be in for a long night, I think, on election day next month because uh, this is uh, and, and 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 like you note, Charlie, the stakes are pretty high because if, if Biden loses, uh, if McAuliffe rather loses in Virginia, uh, the Biden agenda is functionally over. I mean, there are going to be Democrats in tough races for next year that are going to be looking at a result in a state like Virginia if Republicans win. And, and heading for the hills and trying to, you know, batter down and not not try to support a whole lot coming from this White House. Well, let, let's stick with that point. OK, so it, it, it's a governor's race in one state. Why would that be the end of the Biden agenda? So, number one, Virginia, Virginia is unusual because it's, it's held. The election is held a year after the presidential race. So more than any other governor's race, it really has served as a temperature, a temperature check yeah. for where, where the politics are. So I, I, I'm not someone who sees a you know, tea leaves in every election, but Virginia has always been a pretty accurate bellwether of where the politics are in, in, in the country. Um, it, it's had a pretty remarkable streak. In fact, Terry McAuliffe was the only uh, governor to, to break that streak in the last 40 years when he ran against Ken Cuccinelli in yeah, 2013 yeah. after Obama got yeah, elected, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And Cuccinelli only lost by three points. It's a pretty close race when everyone thought that McAuliffe was going to win in a landslide. So the wind is very much, I mean, the, the, the mood of the country, it's, it's a good temperature check. But, but, how, but how, does it, how, how does it actually play out? Does, it, does a Republican win in Virginia just spook all of the vulnerable centrist Democrats in Congress just across the country and they're like, we're off, we're out? Well, it's not just it's not just a win or a loss, but it's also the way McAuliffe has talked about some of the the big issues in the race. So, you know, uh, one of the more more notable lines he had at, at the last debate was about, you know, to, uh, urging Democrats to pass, you know, an, infra, an infrastructure bill, and and, and he he did say that I believe he thought the three and a half trillion dollar number was was too high. Um, right. You know, the, again, Virginia voters, the ones who decide Virginia elections, these are moderate minded 
voters in Northern Virginia and the Richmond suburbs and Tidewater who have leaned pretty strongly to the Democratic Party. But Democrats have been renting these voters. These are not, you know, hardcore Democrats. These are these are persuadable swing voters who probably lean uh, Democrat, but aren't, aren't locked in uh, with the party. So, you know, when you have a bad political environment for your party, and then frankly, you know, Youngkin has run on some issues like education that that uh, are, are really resonant in, in, in these suburban communities. And like he's what? been able to tap into like some of this latent anger, latent dissatisfaction that I think McAuliffe has been slow to pick up on. Okay, so on, on that, you're, you know, if, 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 if I'm in Virginia and I'm watching the, uh, the political commercials, which are often an indicator of like what the candidate thinks is working, what is Youngkin hammering on right now? Well, right now, actually, it's funny you ask because mm-hmm. every single – he's running an advertising blitz 100% on education. Uh, he, there was a line that McAuliffe used in the, in the last debate a couple weeks ago. Saying, basically arguing that parents shouldn't be overruling school boards or you know teachers' decisions. Yeah, parents shouldn't decide what's taught in schools or something like that. Yeah, the quote was, "I don't think parents should be telling schools what uh, they should teach." Uh, yeah, and that is sort of you know the, we've talked about these ed- education issues, whether it's school choice, critical what's called critical what they're calling critical race theory, um, excellence, and, and, and merit based admissions. This issue about you know, Youngkin really grabbed onto this issue in the soundbite because it kind of encompasses all the dissatisfaction that a lot of folks are feeling with the state's education system. You know, it, it, it's it, the parents first theme is sort of this umbrella that captures everyone from the right wing CRT folks to people who are really worried that like the, the, the standards are being lowered in schools and, and the admissions tests are being removed. And, you know, people are focused more on changing school names and focusing on the curricula that kind of encompasses this dissatisfaction that doesn't just, you know, doesn't just live on the right, but it also lives in the center and even a little bit on the center left. So that's been the only ad in the last few days that you, you'll see on TV from Youngkin. And they're pretty bullish that the education issue is a sort of a sleeper issue that's caught the Democratic Party by surprise. So what what is, what is McAuliffe pushing back? What did, what is his uh, what is his blitz? Well, McAuliffe is, 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 is thinks this is all nonsense. I mean, he, yeah. he said that CRT was sort of a figment of conservative his imaginations and he, uh, you know, he's running on the traditional democratic message on education, the teachers union type type theme message, teacher pay going up, get more pre-K, diversify the state's education workforce. The stuff that you would be hearing from any Democrat in any election, you know, whether it's now or 20 years ago. Mm. Right. And I think Youngkin has sort of tapped into what's changed in, 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 mm. in, in the last mm. couple of years. And again, it, this is this is a big test. I wrote a column about this today. This is sort of a big test of, of the Republican cultural messaging, right? I mean, it's it's Trumpism without Trump, but I think there is it's not just you know there, there it's not just right wingers that are worried about the state's education system. There are a lot of I have these conversations in my own as a Virginian, <laughs> I have these conversations with a lot of Democrats that are really worried about standards, really worried about where the curriculum is going in, in, in these schools. And I think he's tapped into something that he thinks is a political winner. Uh, it, it, so th- th- this will be very, very revealing for because uh, Youngkin has been, you know, trying to walk that tightrope. So on the issue of, you know, the the election big lie, you know, he will say things like we need to audit the voting machines and stuff, you know, throws throws enough red meat to the, the, the Trumpian base. But we'll see whether or not that's salient, because if he can pull this off, what that says is 
that that Republicans, at least in in some of these uh, in, in in some areas of the country, will be able to get away with going along with the, the the Trump election narrative as long as they hit the other cultural issues. That that's really what you're saying here is that is that is that. Is is that is that while Democrats and progressives have been focusing on January sixth and the big lie, um, Youngkin can sort of wink, wink, wink about the the, the fraudits and things like that. But the real push is going to be on these other cultural issues, including education. Um, yeah, and, and, and voters, voters. Yeah, yeah I was going to say voters are not holding the whole Republican Party responsible for the acts of Trump. The problem for Republicans is their voters want that stuff. So if you have sort of a unicorn where you get, you know, if it's like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia or in New Hampshire, it looks like uh, the governor, uh, Chris Sununu, is leaning towards the Senate race. And he's also walked that tightrope pretty effectively. Uh, so it's actually kind of interesting that in some of the bluer states that are battlegrounds, Republicans have had more success because they don't have to deal with the Trump factor quite as much in their own primaries or nominating processes. It's the redder states where they may lose because they just go so far to the crazy that no, no candidate can win, even in a good state. Like this that. is, this is, I think this is an important point because Glenn Youngkin was not the most Trumpy candidate in that primary, but in other areas of the country, well, like, like Georgia, where they're, they appear serious about nominating Herschel freaking Walker uh, to the United States Senate or other candidates who m- might be, be, so we say, really problematic in a general election. In Virginia, you put up, what did you say, the the, the Mitt Romney in a, in, a, in a Trump world. Yeah. I mean, there are still, I mean, a lot of them are kind of keeping their heads down. A lot of them are adjusting um, to this new Trumpian controlled universe. But the majority of Republicans in Congress, and we've talked about this before on the show, keep their, you know, bite their tongues, but ultimately don't, don't see eye to eye with anything these Trumpists see. So like Mike Gallagher is a good example in Wisconsin. Yeah, perfect. Congress. He's a very, he was a Cheney supporter for a while until he, he turned, turned on her. But, um, you know, very reasonable, smart, policy-oriented guy who, if Ron Johnson retired, would, would likely run for the Senate. Um, and... Uh, the question is for Republicans: Is he, if you're an anti-Trump Republican, is he someone you can get behind, or is the whole party corrupted at this point? That's the big question. Josh Krauschauer, thank you so much for coming back on the the podcast. You can read uh, Josh's stuff at the National Journal. His column against the grain. Uh, good having you back, Josh. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm going to be off tomorrow because I'm going to be taking a red eye from uh, from LA back to the Midwest. But we will be back here. Uh, on Friday and sitting in for me tomorrow on the podcast, uh, our good friend and colleague, Amanda Carpenter. Have a great day.